how's everybody doing? Good? Good. Well, it's, that's about to change, because we're going to talk about sin. Uh, we actually are. Uh, I hope that if you're a guest of somebody, that they explained what the topic was. Otherwise, this might be a bit of a surprise, uh, or one of the most disappointing bar experiences you've ever had. Probably not. Probably not, but it might be up there. Tonight, uh, we are continuing uh, our summer series, the Theological Talkback. We, we did one in May, June, July, and then this is the last one uh, for the season. And I hope that you've been enjoying them. I hope that you've been able to make it to a number of them. If this is your first one, uh, we're especially glad that you're here with us tonight. Um, we usually say welcome to Redeemer Community Church, uh, and, and since that's the people and not that uh, domed building over there. Welcome to Redeemer Community Church. We're glad that you're here and, uh, and that you're here with us and that we're going to dig into this topic together. The way that this works is we have uh, a time of lecture, a time of talk, and then a time of talk back. We'll take a little break. You can get some more to drink. Uh, be sure and, and tip well. These are great guys. They've, they've been helping us out a lot this summer and they've been great to, uh, for us to be having this here and we're really thankful for Avondale Brewery and so tip well and be kind with that. So the, the order, I'll do the talk, we'll take a break, and then we'll ask some questions, and we'll talk about these things together. Um, you might have heard me say before that theology is best done in community. I really believe that. I think that, that when we just kind of uh, walk off on our own and just want to think about things by ourselves and not engage other people, that we actually start doing harm to ourselves. And, and what is really helpful is when we can have these conversations together, where we can ask hard questions, where we can search the scriptures, we can pray about it, we can push back lovingly. Um, and so that's kind of the dynamic that we want for this, where we can take complicated, heavy ideas and really think about them. Theology really is just thinking about God, and we all do that which means that we all are theologians in that sense. We all think about God, whether we know Him or love Him or care about Him. Uh, maybe, maybe, maybe you don't, but you probably think about Him. And thinking about God, especially in community, is a profitable thing. And so our topic tonight is the fall and its effects. First, we will consider the story of the fall, then we will examine the effects of the fall. And then we will wrap up with hope in the fall. In the little handout, there's uh, one side. It's just for you to take notes, something to write on, just in case you didn't bring anything. Uh, and then on the other side, you have the scripture of Genesis 3, which we'll be engaging uh, throughout the evening. And so I, I want to make sure that you had a copy. So that's why you've got that there. There's also a quote. and Let me read that to you. It's a quote from Gerald Bray. He's a professor uh, at Beeson Divinity School and about a hundred other divinity schools. He's all, he's all over the place. But uh, he, he says this, There is no subject of greater importance to Christian theology than its understanding of the concept of sin and its effects. I don't think that we need a whole lot of convincing when it comes to the brokenness of our world or the brokenness of other people or the brokenness of ourselves. I don't think that we need a whole lot of convincing for that. 
We don't need a whole lot of evidence because evidence is really just all around us and in us. G.K. Chesterton wrote that the doctrine of original sin is the only part of Christian theology that can be proved. It's not a popular topic. It's not a popular thing to think about or to prompt other people to think about because it gets into some really murky places in our hearts. Uh, New York Times columnist David Brooks, uh, he wrote a piece a few years back called When the Good Do Bad. Uh, Let me read a a brief portion of it. David Brooks, not Joel's brother, by the way. (laughs) It'd be neat, but that's a different David Brooks. Equally as fascinating, but this one writes for the New York Times. All right. It's always interesting to read the quotations of people who knew a mass murderer before he killed. They usually express complete bafflement that a person who seemed so kind and normal could do something so horrific. Friends of Robert Bales, who was accused of massacring 16 Afghan civilians, have expressed similar thoughts. Friends and teachers describe him as caring, gregarious, and self-confident before he, in the vague metaphor of common usage, apparently snapped. As one childhood friend told the Times, that's not our Bobby. Something horrible, horrible happened to him. Any of us would be shocked if someone we knew and admired killed children. But these days, it's especially hard to think through these situations because of the worldview that prevails in our culture. And this is what we need to zero in on here. According to this view, most people are naturally good because nature is good. The monstrosities of the world are caused by a few people, the Hitlers. They are fundamentally warped and evil. This worldview gives an easy conscience because we don't have to contemplate the evil in ourselves. But when somebody who seems mostly good does something completely awful, we're rendered mute or confused. This prevailing worldview that Brooks is writing about. It's a belief that people are naturally good. And the greatest benefit of this worldview is that we get this easy conscience. We don't have to think about the brokenness or the evil within ourselves. It affords us a great luxury. Everybody's good, which is really me telling me I'm good, and I don't have to deal with the evil in me. So what about you? What do you think about this? What's your worldview? This worldview of uh, people being generally mostly good, it, it goes in step with the worldview of progress, that things are getting better. Really, if we get enough education, if we get enough finances, money, if we get enough money together, if we get enough technology and medicine, if we make these steps of progress, then we just get better and better and better, and the evil dissipates. So, for, uh, for any of you that have gone to college, you are in the 1% of the world who has that education. Uh, resource-wise, if you have a car, you're in 7% of the population there of the world. So we have resources, we have access to healthcare, we have 
We have these things, we have education, we have all these elements of progress, so how about you? How about the people that you know? Any malice or anger? Any slander? Any jealousy? Anything evil at all left? Or has it all just dissipated with our progress? I mean, really, the Western world should be the most good society, right? Because we have all these elements of progress. And yet I know and you know that your very own heart testifies against that truth. And it renders it a lie. It can't be true. It's not true. And so we have to deal with these things. It, it, it might be helpful here at the start to define sin. And what I mean when I... Because I'm going to say sin a whole lot. Get ready. Uh, but it might be helpful to know what I mean when I say that. And as I've spent time trying to hone in on, on a, a, a definition and reading other people's definitions, this has been one of the most fascinating parts of this study. And so I think if we begin here, maybe it will unfold in all the other places that we talk about tonight. So, what I mean when I'm defining sin, when I'm saying sin, I'm saying that we are... It's a life or it's an act that's living independently from God and His commands. Living independently from God and His commands. Independent judgments about human welfare, how we should live, what we should do. And further, to get a a, a biblical definition that kind of unfolds after that, is that everything not done in faith Everything not done unto God is sin. So it's not just about wrongness or badness. It's related directly to God and living unto Him or independently. So, uh, the effects of this uh, definition and and how we think about it, and really how we relate to this, I want to read another definition uh, by Francis Spufford. Um, he's, a, he's a British author, um, and, and for that, this is a heavily edited uh, version of me reading this. He gets away with words that I don't. I don't want to have a meeting with Joel tomorrow. I've got a busy, busy week ahead, and so, uh, and really, I don't know that many curse words, so I'm not going to say any, so I'm going to heavily dance around here. But, um, I do want you to be surprised if you check this out of the library and you're like, oh, goodness. Uh, Lifeway used to do a thing, maybe they still do, where they put stickers on books where they say, like, read with discernment. <laughs> like, let's put that on every book, okay? Like, let's, re- let's read and actually think. That'd, prob- that'd be good for it. Put two of those on the Bible, even. That would be helpful. Anyway, moving on. This is what he has to say about sin, sin nature. Really these effects of the fall. This is how he puts it. He refers to it as the human propensity to mess things up. Or let's add another word here, the human propensity to mess things up. Because what we're talking about here is not just our tendency to lurch and to stumble and to mess up by accident. Our passive role as agents of entropy, no. It's our active inclination to break stuff. Stuff here including moods, Promises, relationships we care about, our own well-being, and other people's. As well as material objects who, whose high-gloss 
positively seems to invite a big, fat scratch, like most of your iPhones that I've seen. Now, I hope we're on common ground. In the end, almost everyone recognizes this as one of the truths about themselves. You can get quite a long way through an adult life without having to acknowledge your own personal propensity to etc., etc., maybe even all the way through it, if you're someone with a very high threshold of obliviousness, or with the kind of disposition that registers sunshine even when a storm is howling all around. But for most of us, the point eventually arrives when at least for an hour or a day or a season, we find we have to take notice of our human propensity to mess things up. Our appointment with realization often comes at one of the classic moments of adult failure, when a marriage ends, when a career stalls or crumbles, when a relationship fades away with a child only seen on Saturdays, when the supposedly recreational drug habit turns out to be exercising veto powers over every other hope and dream. It need not be dramatic, though. It can equally well just be drifting into the place of one more pleasant, indistinguishable little atom of wasted time when you're mourning like all the others, which quietly discloses to yourself. You're lying in the bath and you notice that you're 39 and that the way you've been living bears scarcely any resemblance to what you've thought you've always wanted. Yet you got here by choice by a long series of choices for things which at any moment temporarily outbid the things you say you wanted most. And as the water cools in the light of Saturday morning in summer ripples heartlessly on the bathroom ceiling, you glimpse an unflattering vision of yourself as, being whose once, as a being whose wants make no sense. They don't harmonize. Whose desires deep down are discordantly arranged so that you truly want to possess and you truly want to. At the same time, you're equipped and you realize the farce, the tragedy of all the happy endings undone. And the human propensity to mess things up draws you in. We have these moments where we realize, where we're stunned, where we're brought to our knees, where everything crashes like a fine plate on the kitchen floor and we realize that things are not okay. When we get to this point, when we can be honest enough with ourselves, with God, with one another, that things are not okay, that is the place that we can begin. The scriptures don't give us uh, a theory of sin or a theory of the fall. It gives us a story gives us a story. It tells us what happened. So as we have this kind of cosmic question, what, what's wrong? What, what happened to me? What happened to this world? What has gone wrong? God gives us a story as our starting point for understanding. He gave it to us intentionally. He gave it to us on purpose. And He gave it to us in such a way and phrased it in such a way on purpose I remember going to the movies. I was in Nashville. I went to see the movie Punch Drunk Love. And it has, uh, it's starring Adam Sandler. I had seen Happy Gilmore. I had seen Billy Madison. I know funny Adam Sandler. He did not show up in Punch Drunk Love. It is a very dark, 
very uh, disturbing, maybe comedy? It, it, uh, yeah, they call it a dark comedy. Very dark comedy. P.T. Anderson, director and writer. And so it's, it's, a, it's a dark tale. But if you went in and you expected Happy Gilmore Part 2, or if you went in expecting Billy Madison Part 2, you were going to be very, very disappointed. But that's not the movie he was making. He, he didn't show up and, and do his best Happy Gilmore, and it, it unfortunately came into this really depressing guy who breaks a sliding glass window with a hammer and starts crying. Very strange. Um, well, it's not the movie he was making. And, and we have to realize what story God is telling. There are lots of things he doesn't tell us in this story. A lot of characters we don't get backstories on. A lot of questions. I don't have a lot of answers right there. But that's not what he's trying to do. Maybe he's not trying to answer the question that you're asking right there. So we have to be careful. We have to be careful not to shoehorn in our ideas and concepts and, and readings into it. We have to be careful. And so we take this story, the story of sin, as it comes to us. So let's look at it together. Let's look at it together. What's happened before we get to the top of the, if you're looking at the page uh, that was handed out to you, what's happened right before this is that God has, uh, God has made man and woman, he, or he is... He is Creation has unfolded by God's authority and His power. And He has given direction about two trees that He's mentioned in chapter 2. He's given direction. He says, uh, don't eat of the tree of knowledge. He gives that command. He issues that to Adam. Adam relays this to Eve. And here we are in chapter 3. Look at verse 1 with me. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Notice he misquotes God. God said, Don't eat of one specific tree. And the serpent is now saying, Did he say that you couldn't eat from any tree? He also changes say, uh, what God did was He commanded something. God commanded something, and, and the serpent is now twisting that to be, did He really say this? Did He really suggest this? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. In verse 4, but the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. So now he lies. He contradicts. Verse 5, For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. All right, let's take a pause. This was willful disobedience by Adam and Eve. Yes, the serpent tempted them, but he did not force anything. He lied, but he did not coerce them. The serpent and Eve have their discussion, and then Adam and Eve go to the tree, they check it out, they look at it, and it does not look dangerous. So they assess it, 
with the best of their capabilities, and they say, not dangerous. In fact, it looks, it's delightful. It, it, it delights my eyes. It delights the senses. It's beautiful to look at. And so he, she takes, she eats, and Adam with her, she hands it to him. He eats. This was willful transgression of God's will, his law, his command. They were in a created order that God had called good. The warning from God was an indicator to Adam and Eve that they were both capable of making these choices, these free choices. They had moral discernment. That's why this command was given out. They could discern. Like they could hear it, they could discern it. So it wasn't a question of them having moral discernment. They had a free choice. They had this freedom. And this is a perversion of freedom that they do here. They're not acting out of corruption. They're acting out of freedom. And that freedom was being perverted. And Adam and Eve, they, they broke God's command and now they know good and evil. So what does that mean? That this might be helpful to kind of uh, take these two images and, and, and hold them side by side. What the servant says is that they would know good and evil. That if they took and they ate that, they would know good and evil. Knowing good and evil. Know is brought up again in just a, a few verses down, still in chapter 3, of, uh, of Adam knowing Eve. It has to do with this intimate connection, this mingling of souls. There's, there's a being, being really acknowledged in and known in that capacity, a closeness. And to think about how Adam and Eve knew good because they were in God's good creation that was declared to them even. God declared that it was good. That that was known, but they did not know good and evil. They didn't know evil in that sense. And here, after eating, after disobeying God, they know evil in this intimate level. This will be important as we move on in our study here tonight. So, moving on from that, the consequences of this sin. Look at verse 7. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, and He said to them, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. And then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So one of the first things I want us to see in this section of the consequences of sin is a pretty blanket statement about our identity post-fall, and that is this. Sin makes us hide. Sin makes us hiders. We hide from God. We hide from 
one another. We hide from ourselves. We have all these broken relationships. An added broken relationship is creation, ourselves with creation itself. But these, these three things, these three relationships where we hide, we hide from God, we hide from one another, and we hide from ourselves. This first reaction is to hide from God. And maybe some of you find yourselves in that place right now, or at least with that tendency to hide from God. We get angry at Him about our circumstance. We get bitter. We believe that He's controlling or that maybe He's mad at us and and we hide from Him. Romans chapter 3, Paul says this, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. So not only are we hiding from Him, but we're not seeking Him. But that is the nature of God, that while we are hiders, He is a seeker. Moving on. We hide from one another. The blame shifting that happens, Adam to Eve, Eve to serpent, surely that's familiar to you. Surely you know that game. You know those tendencies. As soon as someone calls you out on something, your knee-jerk reaction is probably to think of the nearby dagger. It can be completely unrelated to the argument at hand. It can be completely unrelated to what is going on in that circumstance or in that fight or whatever is going on. You just reach for the closest dagger and you strike. We distance ourselves from one another. We hide, we blame, and we hide. And in our hiding, we hide from vulnerability, we hide from intimacy, we hide from connection. And what we see, even from Adam and Eve hiding from God, they're hiding from love, love himself. And we replicate that on our own human interactions as well. But our shame and our fear, our sin, drives us away from each other and from love. Think about this. Think about the relationship where you have pledged yourself. For those of you who are married, you have pledged yourself to another person. And yet, even in that relationship where you've pledged yourself in front of other people, in front of God, you still run and hide. Fear and sin drive us to hide. And we hide from ourselves. We are simultaneously self-consumed and self-haters. There is pride and there is anxiety over not being enough, not being safe, not being secure, not being significant. And then there's pride. I can do it on my own. I am everything. I don't need anyone. I especially don't need God. And somehow we live in this tension every day. We stand in between the two, holding on, making that connection. Sin has this effect on us. This brokenness, this emotional brokenness, sexual brokenness, a brokenness with our jobs, a brokenness with our identity, a brokenness in our 
intimacy, a brokenness in our communication, the way that we speak and the way that we hear. How many arguments have you been in where you have to like come back to say, I don't think that you're actually listening to me. And then you realize that neither of you are listening. You're just talking. You're waiting to talk, and then you talk over, and then there's not listening. There's not communication. It's broken. And we know this. Sin confuses us, and it dulls our senses, and it blurs our vision. C.S. Lewis, um, in one of his fiction books, he, he has a character, kind of an Eve character. She says this about sin. There is a dark ignorance that comes from doing evil as a man by sleeping loses knowledge of sleep. What's the way that we can forget that we are sleeping? How, like, how can, what's the best place where we can not know sleep? It's when we're sleeping. Like, that's the best place where we don't, we don't even know what sleep is when we're sleeping. And to think that sin... When we, when we are living in sin, when we are actively pursuing sin even, it clouds our judgment that we don't even know that we're sinning sometimes. Or it dulls our senses to really care. There is a, this rhythm to sin. This tone to sin. It's kind of like a lullaby. That sin lulls us to forgetfulness. It lulls us to sleep where we forget about sleep altogether, where we forget about sin altogether. It lulls us into complacency. It lulls us into a place where we just don't care anymore. We feel like we deserve to do whatever it is that we're doing, that we have some right, or that someone has wronged us in such a way that we can respond in such a way. And it lulls us. Sin has these tones, these rhythms of a lullaby. It often begins with doubt that God is something or has commanded something. The doubt comes in and we question that. And then the enemy promises something, promises fulfillment in something that is lacking. And we are lulled further. And then when we get that thing that was promised and we realize it's temporary, and it doesn't really fulfill all the things that we need that sin to fulfill, we start back again. Well, God isn't who He says He is. God must not be who He says He is, nor command what He says He commands, because I need something else. And we are lulled. Consider this. The sickest parts of your soul are unknown to you. Those are the sleeping parts, the, the places that have been lulled to sleep by sin. The darkest parts of our hearts are not known to us. We have no idea what we are capable of, and that is part of this consequence fall. Two other things about the consequence. Corruption and guilt. One, that there is a corruption that has come to us, that, that nature is corrupt, that human nature is corrupt, that we stand as corrupt individuals. And it's out of this twisted heart that we are inclined to sin, that our, that our souls, that our hearts are sick with sin. It's the assertion 
that original sin makes to the point that we are not uh, just sinners because that we sin. There is an identity issue at play. It's not just sinners because we sin, it's sinners because that's who we are. That we have an inherited corruption. Secondly, an inherited guilt that in Adam and Eve, in the fall of Adam, that all of mankind bears that guilt. So an inherited corruption from Adam and an inherited guilt. We'll talk about those things further probably in the Q&A time, but we'll keep moving. The Westminster Confession says this, Man by his fall into a state of sin hath wholly lost all ability of will to any spiritual good accompanying salvation. So as a natural human, being altogether averse from that which is good and dead in sin, is not able by their own strength to convert oneself or to prepare oneself thereunto. What that means is that this corruption has rendered us to where we cannot make our own way back to God. In no way. Not by being good enough, not by doing enough good activities, not by studying things rightly or having great conversations, not by being earnest in our hearts and our wills, not in any of these things can we make a way back to God. We are rendered enabled. We can't do this. We have an inability to make our way back to God. That is this total depravity. And that is not a uniquely uh, Calvinistic idea. That those, those ideas also run in the Arminian tradition as well. It unfolds, in, there, there are distinct expressions of those things, but those kind of ha- they, they share this common idea that we are not able to make our way back to God and that we are totally depraved. A few more things on the consequences. The fall touches everything. There's not a relationship that you have. There's not an activity that you are invested in that is not affected by the fall. Now there are degrees, of course, but but I'm talking about the extent It manifests itself in different degrees in different places at different times. But the extent of it, it impacts everything. There's a a wonderful slash terrifying Sufjan Stevens song about John Wayne Gacy. And in it, he's talking about, I mean, John Wayne Gacy's serial killer. Second serial killer reference tonight. We're at an all-time high here. Uh, So... He's talking about how, I mean, John Wayne Gacy, he, he had bodies underneath his floorboards. And it's a really terrifying song about this mass murderer. But then he ends with this comment about, if you were, if you were to look beneath the floorboards of my life, and if you saw what I have hidden, you would realize that I'm not so different than him. I'm not that different than him. I remember probably 10 years ago, was it, when uh, there were a bunch of I think teenagers that were going around burning churches in Birmingham, do y'all, or around Alabama. Do you all remember that, those of you who are Alabamians? Uh, th- this was going on about 10 years ago. And I remember hearing all these people that were just like, these, ca- these people are terrible, they need to be strung up and shot, and they need to do all, like, all, these, all this vitriol at these people. And I remember 
having one of these kind of John Wayne Gacy foreboard Sufjan Stevens moments thinking, what do I do to the temple of God? What do I do? They're, they're burning down buildings. What do I do to the very temple of God? The people of God is the temple of God. And then also to, to my own body that God has purchased with his own blood. What do I do? How am I different than these people? I'm not. And as soon as I start to think that I am, the enemy has won yet again. When I delight in the death of an evil man, the biggest danger is that I start to think that I'm not evil like him. It's a dangerous thing. The fall touches everything, and yet somehow, somehow, there is hope in the fall. We're not going to have time to get into it, but in, in the curse that, that, that comes, as, as God issues out these curses to the serpent and to man and to woman, there's a promise there's a promise that one would come, a, an offspring, a descendant would come who would crush the serpent. There is a promise. This is the first kind of gospel uh, glimmer that we have in the Old Testament that one would come and he would right the wrongs. He would break the curse as far as it is found. And this is the hope in the fall. Also the fact that there is still beauty in the midst of this fall. There is still beauty here. That there are sunsets and there are births of babies and there are meals around tables that we wish would never end. And there are hugs and there's laughter and there are first dates and first kisses and there are paintings and songs and dances and God did not throw the world on a cosmic trash heap after the fall and say good riddance. He didn't throw us onto the trash heap, but he threw his son into our world. That through the cross and through the resurrection and through the ascension and his promised return, that beauty would rise from the ashes of the fall. And we bear witness to that. We are testimonies to that. Your liberated heart from the master's sin testifies that God is in the work. He's in this business of bringing beauty back and building the garden. And in that garden, there will be a tree, a tree of life. The tree that Adam and Eve were cut off from as they were sent out and banished from Eden. We would come back and He would build for us a dwelling place. And that He would dwell with us. And we would not have to hide from Him anymore. Nor would we have to hide from one another. Nor would we hide from ourselves. But that we could wholeheartedly live in to the goodness and greatness of God. Some of you might have read from Brene Brown's work before or just watched a TED Talk. Sometimes it's easier to watch a TED Talk than read a book. Uh, so maybe you've seen that. Uh, but Brene Brown, a, a counselor, psychologist, researcher, she, she wrote this in her book called The Gifts of Imperfection. Owning our story can be hard, but not nearly as difficult as spending our lives running from it. Embracing our vulnerabilities is risky, 
but not nearly as dangerous as living, giving up on love and belonging and joy. The experiences that make us most vulnerable. Only when we are brave enough to explore the darkness will we discover the infinite power and the light. This is the promise of the gospel. It's the promise of the gospel that when we are given these eyes to see the darkness within ourselves, when that comes, it comes in tandem with the ability to see the light of God. It comes in tandem with the Spirit awakening our hearts to see Jesus. We are not left alone looking at our wickedness and wondering what to do. We are not left alone looking at our sinfulness, trying to muster up the courage to make it better. When we are given the eyes to see the darkness in ourselves, we are also given the eyes to see the goodness and graciousness of Jesus. That's why considering the fall, thinking about original sin, what it means for how we treat other people and give forgiveness and live in the rhythms of grace receiving and grace giving, the reason that it's not a completely depressing topic is because God is still at work and the promise of the gospel is true. Uh, I'm not sure if anyone has said it as succinctly or, or wonderfully as Tim Keller, which is why you hear this quote all the time, but I think it's a good place for us to um, take a pause for our break. But hear these words. It is his, uh, uh, his rendering of, of what the gospel is in, in a really uh, brief word. We are more sinful and broken than we ever dared believed. And we are more loved and more accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hoped. So with that, we'll take our break. We'll ask some questions and dig back in. So, I'm not sure if we, uh, there's some empty seats now. I'm not sure if we got rid of the, the, Sinners, or if I just had the people who still want to drink beer, <laughs> could go either way. Six of one, half a dozen of the other. We good? Okay. So I, I've got a couple of more things that I, I'd like to wrap up from the talk. I wanted to make sure that we took our break at 8 o'clock for everybody. Um, I've got a couple more things to, to wrap up, and then we'll, we'll do the Q&A, okay? So one of the things that I brought up in Adam and Eve knowing sin. So at the start, in the story, Adam and Eve, they know sin as a result of disobeying God. So, as we come to 2 Corinthians, which we did a study in, uh, I guess it was last year or so, we studied 2 Corinthians together as a church. Um, there's, a, there's a sentence that Paul writes in chapter 5. Let me read it to you. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. For our sake, God made Him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. So, 
The only way there could be a rescuer, the only way that there, would, there could be rescue for humankind in any way, especially in light of the total depravity that we talked about, the only way that there could be a way back to God, reconciliation, the only possible way is if there was one who did not know sin. See, one of those things that's passed down, one of the effects of sin is that we all know sin. That's, that total depravity is it makes its way to us. And, and so what happens is God the Father sends the Son who does not know sin. See, we have a culture that thinks like if you don't know something, you can't really judge it. Uh, or you can't really have like a perspective on something unless you've, you're tried and true. Like you've done that and you've been there or what, whatever the thing is. Like you can't knock Dollywood until you've been to Dollywood, you know? <laughs> I'm sure that's what you were thinking of. But we have these, uh, we have these, these ideas that you can't, you can't knock something until you've tried it. And what's amazing is that Jesus understands and sees the full extent of our sin better than we can. Now, He doesn't know sin, but as God, He sees the full extent, the, the, the full outcome, all the consequences. He knows all of those things, and we don't. Which is why we can go back to those same things over and over and over and over again. Because we don't understand. And part of the reason that we don't understand is because the way that we very, the, the way that we think, not just the things that we think about, but the very way that we think is impacted by the fall. The way that we process things, the way that we think about things, the way that we view the world, the way that we try to connect dots, this is a broken system. It's a broken way of thinking. Which is why we need, as Paul says, a renewing of our minds. We need a metamorphosis, a transformation that the way that we think would change. Not just the things that we think about. Not just a content change. We need a transformation of the very way we think. The way that we see. The way that we listen. The way that we talk. The way that we engage. It has to change. It has to be transformed. And so it took the one who did not know sin but who knew the full extent of it to become sin on our behalf so that we might become, so as He's becoming sin on our behalf, we become righteous. We become righteousness in Him. All of this in Him. Which is another beautiful concept for us to tie back in. That we are no longer hiding from God, but we are hidden in Christ. That is where our identity comes from. That is where our security comes from. This is where this right thinking begins to grow in us. A disdain for what is wicked and a love of what is righteous, putting to death sin in our lives. That's an active daily occurrence of hating sin, hating it more, putting it to death, putting it to get to death again. Waking up tomorrow, putting it to death again. We can't put sin to death if we're not willing to look at something and label it as sin. To acknowledge that that is a transgression against what God has revealed. But when we submit, when we realize that we are no longer slaves to sin, but we are now slaves to God in righteousness, and we submit under that authority, 
And then we start to see the world as it is. We start to see the things that we used to do, that we used to delight in. Now we grieve over those things. But we don't grieve, even in this regard, as those who have no hope. Now we grieve knowing the cross. And we have to come back to that central reality that is through the cross that we are reconciled. Reconciled to God. We, are rec- we see that in... Uh, 2 Corinthians 5.17, that we are reconciled to God. We've been given this ministry of reconciliation that's also with each other. And in in the renewing of our minds that we are being reconciled back to ourselves, not in a way that is prideful, nor in a way that's self-hating, but seeing ourselves as sons or daughters of the living God. That restored identity in Christ that we are valuable to Him, and He has lavished His love on us. Also, that we don't uh, have to work to gain significance, like our jobs aren't trying to do that. We can, and, and, and then it also transforms another way. So that's in relation to the Christian community, ourselves, and to God. But in another way, it permits us to be compassionate. It permits us to be slow to anger permits us to be patient with people and peaceable because we start to realize uh, she passed away recently but I I heard Elaine Stritch, she was a Broadway star, Uh, you might know her best as uh, Jack's mom on 30 Rock uh, the old lady on there she died recently but she she said in a documentary she she, uh, was referencing her husband, she said everybody's got a sack of rocks to carry We start to see that other people are struggling too. And those who reject God, uh, either through uh, passivity, like just they, they don't really want to talk about it, they're not like aggressive with it, they just don't, they don't believe in Him or trust Him or want to follow Him. And, and they, maybe they do it in a really like, peaceable, kind way, but, but that, they reject Him. Uh, or they do it in a really angry way that's, that's uh, uh, full of vitriol, and they, they, they are very aggressive with it, maybe, maybe that side of things. But, but, and then anything in between. We are able to interact with people in a way realizing that they are broken, and that the pain and the suffering and the effects of the fall are crushing them, and they are hopeless without Christ. That slows uh, our speed in attack and maybe just straight up kills our attack. When we want to, to argue viciously with people, we're not, we're not being asked and peaceably giving a, a, a defense of what we believe like we read in 1 Peter. No, like I'm talking about the, the times when we're engaging in a way that is ungodly, that is not like Jesus, and that is rude and mean. Like that, There's no room for that when we realize that we are living in a broken world and, and, and ultimately in that, uh, in Elaine's words, that um, everyone's got a sack of rocks to carry. Everyone has these burdens to bear. And we can be far more patient and compassionate with people when we see the, and, and understand the fall and the effects of the fall. Um, the last little statement is, is on uh, victory over sin. Kind of hit on that, but... I think it, it bears uh, kind of repeating or emphasizing explicitly here that through the victory of Christ over the grave and over death and sin, 
defeating the enemy and doing all of that through the cross and the resurrection and ascension and then fully in His return. That we also get to participate in victory over sin. That we can see sin put to death in our day-to-day life. That we can see struggles and uh, effects of the fall dissipate and fade through the work of the Spirit in our lives. And that that would be happening in Christian community, that we would see those things. Some, some fights are lifelong. And some victories are hard fought. In fact, I would say most are hard fought. Um, but there is victory through Christ and through His atoning work in life in the Spirit. And we should be mindful of that as we look back at the fall and look at the effects of the fall and then uh, our hope in the fall. So we will uh, we'll kind of close out the talk there and, and go into a Q&A time. Now, the way that the Q&A time goes is if you can uh, stand up where you are, I'll point to you. You stand up. Uh, Say your question as loudly as possible. I'll try and repeat it if it's, if it's not loud enough. Uh, that way everybody can hear. And uh, I'll do my best. If I don't have an answer, if I don't know an answer, I will tell you that. Um, I'm not up here because I'm super smart. Um, that's not why I'm here. And so you can sh- most certainly, every one of you, ask me a question that I don't know the answer to. So that's not going to be any fun, though. Um, so, uh, but, but we're going we're gonna to talk about these things. We can, uh, if it goes a little bit long, we might put a pin in it and uh, we can talk afterwards or something like that. But uh, let's, let's talk about this together now. All right, questions. Who's going to be first? You. You've already forgot the first thing. Nope, nope. Talking to you, but to them. Standing is a new thing. Talk to us both. Okay. So I've got a two-parter. Um, first, uh, did Adam and Eve have a belly button? And then secondly, uh, no. Uh, secondly, um, what you talked about, like, kind of the, the we're created is perfect. We have, you know, we go through the fall, and we kind of have a hope in this new kind of resurrection. There's going to be a new earth, new heaven, new earth. What's kind of to ensure that all this doesn't happen again? The fall. Yeah. It's a great question. I'll, I'll phrase it like this. Raise your hand if I misquote you. So the question is, with, uh, with God's good created order, which he ends with, this is good. He gives the, the seal of approval. And then there's the fall. And then there's this restoration and renewal, reconciliation, recreation that happens. And and what's to say that the cycle doesn't start over again? That there's a a second fall or a second rebellion? And I'm I'm trying to think of where maybe in Scripture we could go that would would talk about that. And I, I think that just general reality of security in Christ that as the remnant that God calls out of humanity and brings to himself as sons and daughters that the security and, and even when, when we hear that, uh, that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ 
when, when, we, when we know that nothing can come, not the will of man, nor uh, evil spirits, or even angels, or no heights, no depths, nothing like that can separate us from the love of God. I think that that irrevocable uh, victory of Jesus in purchasing us with the blood of God secures us to where nothing's going to change that reality. And that's where I would put my confidence that nothing can take us from that position of being in Christ, hidden in Christ. Nothing can pull us out of that. Uh, Not even my own stupidity or failings now, um, but that I have been purchased. I am no longer my own, which means I can't undo this um, because I'm, I'm owned by someone else. And, uh, and there's tremendous security and confidence that we can put in uh, the blood of Christ and in, in our place in Him. Does that answer? Next. They had two belly buttons. It was very confusing. They were surprised when everyone else had one. All right, next question. Yeah. That's a good one. It's <laughs> a good one. Yeah. So the question is, why would, why would God do this? Why would God create anything if he knew that? I mean, think about this. The lamb was slain before Adam and Eve took a bite. Before the very foundation of the earth, the lamb of God was slain. That's remarkable. Now, what what do we do with this? Now, we we have to be careful because uh, if we think about this too long, we'll all just black out and lay down on the floor. (laughs) Now, maybe they're used to that here, but it would still it would be it would be problematic, Uh, nonetheless. So. We have to believe that what God intends, where this is going, that God desires that to lead us through this. That what God intends with with being with His creation again, restored, and with us having a a really a, a, a different relationship with him than, than uh, was had in the garden. Uh, a different kind of interaction where there is a, a, a worship of the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, being in Jesus, united with Christ, union with Christ by the work of the Holy Spirit in a way that is, ve- is very different than what we saw in the original created order. And that what this is leading to is desired by God and 
because of his character, it is good, it is holy, and it is uh, of greatest value and worth. And so, um, and that might be as far as I'm willing to speak into that, maybe. We are, here's the thing, questions like that are wonderful for us to ask and to ponder, um, but we really like start to recognize our limitations <laughs> very quickly when it comes to these things. And so we just kind of look at the arc of the, of the scriptures and what God has revealed in them, uh, but at the same time, there's a, a, a Bart quote, it's probably attributed to 100 people by this point, but he says, where God has closed his holy mouth, I shall not open mine. That's a pretty good uh, pumping of the brakes <laughs> when it comes to some of these things where uh, I, I don't know, but there are certain things that we synthesize from the scriptures that lead us to that view. Question in the back. Yeah, so what would I say to, to a Christian who does not believe in original sin? My first statement would be, uh, how do you explain evil and sin in the world? Um, because that's, I'd like to know. <laughs> like, what is that? How do, you, how do you construct how sin is in the world? Your relationship to it, why you... Um, are a sinner, why other people are, are sinners transgressing God's law? Why is it everyone? Um, could it not be everyone? Like, I think that there are implications there. Um, but because it has to, what original sin, more than like first, it, 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 the, the term really means like the origin of sin, like where sin really began in humanity. And again, this is, this is the question that, that does the, you know, you, you close your mouth because God didn't speak into this. You know, God doesn't say where in the scriptures, uh, it doesn't say where sin initially comes from. The heart of Satan in, in his fall, uh, the heart of Eve when she first listens to uh, the serpent and she starts to doubt the goodness of God, even before taking the apple, was it, was it when she's doubting God that sin or was it just in the transgression of the law? It's only in breaking a command that sin entered in. Um, so uh, I would say that there are implications. If you, if you don't believe in original sin, um, I think that we, we do have to answer for uh, sin in the world. And then uh, our relationship to it and how we explain um, scriptures like through, through Adam's sin comes into the world and then through Christ that this is how righteousness, how we are redeemed. Um, I, think, I think we have to deal with those. Like what it, but I, I would really have to get to like what is the original, what do they think? Like how do they explain sin? And then we would have to deal with that. I know I keep backtracking to it, but what, what would you, do you have a, an answer for the, the person who doesn't believe in original sin? Well, I'm thinking like the difference between someone who says, I'm a sinner just because I sinned, not because I didn't sin, but because I didn't 
It's a good question. And original sin is something, I mean, original sin was really uh, formulated as a, as a theological framework by Augustine. But these, these ideas of like what, what was being passed down from Adam, I think that we do have to deal with what is the connection between Adam uh, and all of humanity. And that it's not just something picked up by each individual. Because then each individual would have the chance to choose good and, uh, and not be fallen. So are you saying that the person does not have a corrupt, they are corrupt but not guilty? Well, I think that we see guilt um, talked about as being from birth. That uh, we see that in Psalm 51, um, in David, as he is repenting of sin, and he says, "In sin did my mother conceive me." He's not meaning that conception was sinful. He's saying that I I am sinful from from the get go. I'm broken from the start. And I didn't just learn into these things. I didn't just see patterns of, or, uh, or have evil forces come around me and just negatively influence me. There was a problem from the very beginning. And, uh, and that innate in every person is this inability uh, to seek after God, to seek after righteousness. And that, that is not just a learned activity or a learned response, but that is something deeply a part of human nature. And that the heart is sick. Um, that the heart is de- deceitful, um, and and these things are, are, I think a, just a consistent rhythm throughout the scriptures that there is there is a problem from the beginning, and that it's not just circumstances or negative influences, but there is a a, a position of inherited guilt and inherited corruption before God. And a devaluing. So, uh, sorry, there's another uh, uh, a problem that happens when we uh, devalue sin. We think that maybe it's maybe it's less than than this uh, human race issue. It's more of a context. Sometimes I make some bad choices. When we do that, when we devalue or undervalue or belittle what sin is, it has an effect on how we view the blood of Christ and what he has accomplished, and the justice of God against sinners. So how God would, would be just in condemning anyone to hell or, or executing justice in that way if it's just this, well, let's see if they're going to be good or bad. Let's see if, if we can just put enough good uh, social constructs around them, then maybe they might just live into a good life. But rather seeing that sin is something it's not just what we're doing, it's who we are. It is an identity issue. And that it has ramifications in God's justice and the significance of the, the cross and the atonement and resurrection. Joel? I was wondering if you talked more about uh, answering your question. Is, is it necessary to be a little Adam in order to believe in original sin? Or are those two things? Thank you for your question. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'll repeat it. He said, is sin really such a big deal? No. 
Pastor Joel asked if, uh, if it's necessary to believe in a literal Adam to believe in original sin. I will speak personally here um, because this is my view and there are lots of Christians throughout history who have had different views on this. Um, people that we wouldn't question if they were a Christian or not. C.S. Lewis was one of them who did not believe in a literal Adam and Eve. Um, I, I believe in a literal Adam and Eve and I believe that that connection to sin and the fall is an important one. Uh, I don't think that if you remove that, all the dominoes fall. Some people do. Some people think that if you take that out, then like it's a whole big guessing game. Uh, but I do think it's an important one. Now, whether or not you have to believe in uh, particular creation uh, perspectives, like for the, you know, can you say that there's not, it's a six day, and that, I think that, a six day doesn't really impact, I don't believe, uh, the requirement of a six day for a literal Adam and then for uh, a literal fall. Um, but I, I hold that view that there was a real Adam. Now, one of the reasons why I do that is because it, it, it reads as though, especially Paul, but also in a reference from Jesus, that they viewed Adam and Eve as real people. Uh, I think that's an, an important hermeneutic or way to, to consider it. Now, you can make arguments that they were just using the milieu of their time or the way that people talked about things, but I don't, I don't think so. I don't think that Paul was simply using a literary device to reference a, a metaphor, an allegory of, of uh, the fall. I think that he was really talking about believing that Adam was a real guy because he parallels him with the real guy, Jesus, from whom redemption comes forth. So that influences my thought. I also uh, believe that part of the problem of the fall and the problem uh, that I experience in even trying to hold all these things together is that I'm broken. The way I think about it, I, yeah, I get that it's, it steps on its own foot in a hundred different places and trying to figure out the linear logic to all of these things. I get that. And I'm actually okay. Like, people used to be really uh, welcoming to mystery. It used to be a, an important facet of the Christian tradition, even. It was a beautiful part of the Christian tradition. And now it's this scandalous part that we have to, you know, build a case for Christ on. We have to have, like, I can file litigation. Jesus was this. Like, I, we don't have to do that all the time. Like, it doesn't have to go in these different areas. Like, we, I, I really believe that there was a, a literal Adam and literal Eve and I could be wrong on that, uh, but I think the way that it unfolds into the way the New Testament engages these ideas and what their uh, sinful disobedience, their willful disobedience of God's law, transgression, transgression of the law, brought this iniquity, this sin that's in all of us, um, and, and then... From that we see, like in Isaiah 53, which uses all the three kind of interchangeable at times words for sin, sin, transgression, iniquity, that he's coming uh, through the suffering servant to save us from those things. 
And I, I feel like that is a, a, a smooth progression there. Not an easy one, but, but a, a, a transgression, a, a, a logical unfolding that happens uh, from a literal atom. Uh, now again, that doesn't mean that one has to wholesale sign off on uh, young earth and, and those kinds of things, because there are people that um, hold an old earth and literal atom view. Um, John Stott, uh, Derek Kidner, and um, Timothy J. Keller are, are people that have some of those um, backgrounds. Now, maybe, I don't think they're all exactly the same in those. They don't all three hold exactly the same view, but they're similar shapes uh, to viewing a, a historical atom. Question in the back. Yeah, so the question is, um, with Adam and Eve, that Adam was acting uh, in his free will, his freedom that he had, which was uh, this unique relationship with God where he truly had uh, a free will. His will was not in bondage. What we see later, um, particularly spelled out in Romans 6, is that there is a bondage of the will for humanity after the fall. That will, the, the will of man is, is in that bondage, and you are a slave, every one. Either a slave to sin, the master sin, the enemy, or a slave of God. There's not a place where you stand outside of that. Now, what's unique in this, in this context when it comes to Adam acting not out of corruption, but out of freedom, is that his heart was not corrupt. He was not... He was not guilty before God. He didn't have an inherited guilt, and he didn't have an inherited corruption. He didn't have a leaning towards sin or a resistance of righteousness. He wasn't corrupt in those things. Nor did they, uh, were they missing a moral capacity to discern activity of being good or bad. They, they heard God say to do this, and they understood that that was a good thing to do, to, to follow Him in His commands. And then as... Uh, and, and this is where you know, Jesus, I think in, uh, in John 5, I might be wrong, it might be 8, but Jesus is talking about Satan and he, he says he's a liar from the beginning. And this goes back to this is the, the serpent who lies, who, who first casts a shade of doubt. He sneers and says, did he really say that? And then he brings in the lie. He brings in the deceit. And he lies to them. And when that is ushered in and Eve begins to doubt in her heart and in her mind and then they go to the tree and then they transgress, they break the law. Then the corruption comes. Uh, we see that corruption firstly played out in them seeing their own nakedness and then in hiding from God in their shame. So that original context was not one of corruption but goodness and freedom, that then, le then the corruption comes in the fall and in the transgression. Does that answer your question? Yes. I meant to ask that after every question. So for those of you who I didn't say that to, I hope I answered your question.
Next question, any more? Uh, yes, Alan. So there's an inherent problem we've been talking about, the fall. And then now I am, we are new creations in Christ. Yeah. So how does that reconcile to identify with Paul? Why do I keep doing the things that I don't want to do? Yeah. If I'm in fact a new creation, that is something in being a new creation, that's something implicitly different than something that I was before. Yeah. Which was completely lost and completely blind. Yeah. So what's the difference? Why do I keep doing the things that I don't want to do? So the question is, I'm a new creation in Christ. I'm, I'm in Jesus. I trust Him. I believe Him. And yet, I'm still doing things that I don't want to do. I'm still sinning. I'm still uh, living independently from God. I'm making these independent choices. I'm not doing everything in faith. Which leads to, uh, uh, kind of unfolds to another question of, not just do Christians still sin, but are Christians always sinning? And the answer is yes. That we are. Because anything not done out of faith is sin, which means that we can still do good things. Even a non-believer can do a good thing. That doesn't mean that they're not sinning. Because the reason why we do things, like in general, like most people... Um, uh, believe that lying is a bad thing. Like that's not a good thing to do. You shouldn't lie. Don't lie to somebody. If you're, you know, especially you're married, some, something happens, don't lie about it. They would say that's, that's wrong. And so someone is following one of God's commandments not to lie. But they're sinning. Because of the re why are they not lying to their spouse? Because they don't want to get in trouble? Because <laughs> they don't want to have a fight? Because they want, for once, just to have a nice dinner. Like they have all these different reasons like why they're not doing it. But it's not living unto God. Seeking to please Him, to honor Him, to love Him, to serve Him, to obey Him. It's not out of the trust of Jesus. It's not from those things. And then we have to say, do I ever do that? Do I ever do anything that's totally 100% for the glory of God, out of a love for God, out of a trust for God, obeying God? Do I ever do that to, to every degree? And the answer is no. Which is why my very best efforts, my very best activities are still these filthy rags before God. It's still busted up and sinful and something worth repenting of. And then... As you might have heard before, I have to repent of that repentance because that was selfishly motivated or I wanted to feel less guilt or what was, what, what was going on in that capacity as well. So, to circle back, uh, state the first part of your question again, please. There's an inherent problem. I yeah. one way, now I'm a new creation, and the problem remains. Yeah, so the problem remains that I, I still have this flesh. This is the way that Paul talks about it. I still have this flesh. I still have this body. I still have this corruption. Now, sin is no longer my master, and I have to be clear on that. I can still hear his voice. I can still obey him, but he's not my master. My master is God. I belong to him. I've been purchased. I'm not my own. In fact, nothing about me is my own anymore. So as I am striving to live in these things and also, another reason why sin is still happening is the Spirit is still illuminating sin in my heart. There's still stuff I don't know about. 
As he's showing it to me, and I grieve over it, and I hate it, and I turn from it, and I trust God. So then, when we have to deal with this, I'm just going <laughs> to unfold all these other questions. Then we have to deal with, is God going to keep forgiving me if I keep coming to him with the same sin? Like, if I keep coming back to God and saying, I did it again. I did it again. I did it again. Is he going to keep forgiving me, or is he just going to lock me up for good one time? You've seen those pictures of, like, the guy who's been arrested uh, 170 times for the same thing, like public drunkenness over and over again, and it's his mugshot over and over again. I feel like I've got a 1,000 mugshots from God where I keep coming in and saying, I, I did it again. I did it again. So is he going to keep forgiving me if I keep repenting over the same things? Yes. Because it's not about the quality of my repentance. It's the quality of Jesus' blood and his sacrifice. That's the quality that my forgiveness is based on. My forgiveness is based not on the quality of my repentance, but on the quality of Jesus. Now that doesn't mean that I use this freedom for sin. By no means. No, I use that freedom now to live into this grace and obedience and trust that God has for me. So as I see, yes, even my best works are sinful. And I see, yes, I keep messing up and doing the same things. But I hold fast to this. I hold fast to Christ and Him crucified on my behalf. I hold fast to the quality of the blood of the atonement. I hold fast to the Lamb that was slain. Because in Him is the full forgiveness of sins. Now if I deny my sin, and I say that I am not a sinner, I make God a liar. But if I confess, He is quick and He is just. How is He just? The blood of Jesus. He is quick and He is just to forgive me. So I run to repentance. I delight in repentance. It's not this dark, gloomy thing of a, of a, of a dark confessional. It is the light of the brilliance of God's glory and His forgiveness being showered upon us who don't deserve it and never will. And we live in that repentance day in and day out. So as we mourn and we say, why do I keep doing the things that I don't want to do? And the things that I should be doing, I'm not doing those things. We should mourn them. We should be aggressive in putting uh, sin to death. But we also are hopeful and we are joyful because of the accomplished work of Christ that's applied to us. Not because of the quality of our repentance, but the quality of Jesus. How about we end there? Does that sound good? If you've got another question, if you would like to look at, I always like to, at the Talkback Coffee Houses, I like to bring uh, some of the resources, or at least like one, a representative from different areas that I uh, have been studying, um, because I need these things, like I'd, <laughs> it's, uh, and I, I enjoy reading them. So here are a couple for you to take a, a gander at if you'd like to. If you'd like to talk about these things further, I'll be up here.